Hello, my name is AJ Lewis, and I'll be recording a conversation between Keon Williams and Darnell Moore for the New York City Trans Oral History Project in collaboration with the New York Public Library as well as the Studio Museum in Harlem. Uh, this conversation was organized by the Studio Museum as a public event, uh, including questions with uh, audience members at the end um, as part of their programming on trans and gender nonconforming artists of African descent. It is June 26, 2019, and this is being recorded at the Gavin Brown's Enterprise Gallery space in Harlem. Experimental Theater Club and more. Darnell L. Moore is currently head of strategy at Breakthrough U US, formerly editor at large at Cassius, co-managing editor at The Feminist Wire, and an editor of The Feminist Wire books. He's also a writer in residence at the Center on African American Religion, Sexual Politics, and Social Justice at Columbia University. Moore's advocacy work centers marginal identity, youth development, and other social justice issues in the US and abroad. His memoir, No Ashes in the Fire, Coming of Age, Black and Free in America, recently won the 2019 Lambda Literary Award for Best Gay Memoir Biography. You can read more about these incredible folks in your printed programs. Thanks again for joining us this evening and enjoy the conversation. Welcome, Darnell and Kian. thank you. Thank you so much. Hi, everybody. Good evening. Good evening. Hello. <laughs> um, Friends. Before we engage in conversation, uh, I figured it's nice to warm up the environment a little bit. It's not that many of us here, um, but we can have and, and sort of magnify this space with our presence and our spirit. So um, welcome. I'm really honored to be in conversation with Keon um, for a variety of different reasons. As I told Keon, I am the holder of all the tea. <laughs> we go back many years now and um, I have been fortunate to be able to watch them um, sort of shapeshift and grow and become um, the artist person that they are. Uh, we met when they were a high school student in Newark. So you can imagine the type of questions I have, right? <laughs> I wanna start, I, what I decided to do is to sort of divide my prompts or questions into four different thematic areas. And by the way, I've not shared this with Keon, so they're <laughs> gonna be totally surprised. And in the spirit of our friendship, that's how it should be. <laughs> um, the first section, I'm, I just have four words, personal, home, blood, and the bricks. Um, these two are spirit and source materials grounding your artworks. It's really important in the practice of black feminism to name our context. So I wanna start with that. So let's start by having you describe your people, your home, your source. Uh, thank you so much for, um, for the framework um, through which to think through these questions. Um, and also again, for being in conversation with me tonight. Um, before I jump, well I guess I'll jump, I'll begin to answer that question by um, reflecting on our friendship because um, it feels so beautiful and uh, wonderful to be able to be in conversation with you. Almost 10 years 
we met um, for the first time when I was a high school student at Science Park High in Newark. Um, and I was a graduating senior and had just helped found the, um, my school's first gay-straight alliance and was also still struggling and grappling with these questions of my own gender and sexuality um, and looking for both models and places through which I could find reflection. And we first met because you were organizing a youth conference at Rutgers Newark and was connected with one of my uh, teachers who was a queer artist as well. Um, and I was invited to speak on that panel that you organized back in 2009, so many moons ago. Um, and that particular moment, or that particular time in my life, um, felt especially um, significant because it was both a point of departure and a point of transition. I was leaving high school, matriculating to Stanford, so on my way um, to California, um, this sort of new life that I was beginning to imagine but couldn't really see. Um, was on the horizon, and I was sort of moving to, towards and becoming something language to describe. Um, and I remember meeting you for the first time and being really grateful to have encountered another creative, an artist, a black queer person who had forged a life um, for themselves. And we didn't age, clearly. I, I, we looked like this. <laughs> I just want to get that on record. Indeed. <laughs> um, and so I just think, or like when we first met, that like you offered possibility model of what life could be as a black queer artist. Um, and so it's so beautiful to be able to share that reflection and like name that and hold that you know, 10 years later. And so to get back to the question about and blood and bricks, the material that has become the source of a lot of my creative practice, I'm literally a child of Brick City. Tell it. <laughs> Which is a nickname for Newark, New Jersey, um, the city that I was born and raised in. And the metaphor of Brick City is said to um, have come from the fact oh, can you hear me? that the people from Newark um, are resilient like bricks. Um, and I think that when I think of home, I think of um, I think of resilience, I think of the brick buildings that my family, you know, grew up in, that I grew up in. Um, my family's from the Back to Terrace Projects. I grew up in a brick building on 4th Ave and 9th Street in Newark. Um, so I'm thinking about the, the architecture of the city that I grew up in. Um, I'm thinking about, I can't help but think of how home is changing right now how the last time I went to Newark, 
my high school, science high school, or my old high school building was demolished in order to build uh, luxury condominiums for the more moneyed folks who are moving um, to Newark now, um, which became a source of, or a source of inspiration for some of my later works. I don't know if it's coming up on the slideshow, but there's some collecting bricks um, and turning those bricks into memorials that sort of contend the kinds of erasure um, and displacement that has come to signify or play a part of like who I am um, and the choices that I've made in my life. Um, yeah, so when I think of home, it's a complicated. I know it is. I, um, I, I remember you were calling this moment where you are about to apply for, a, you're about to apply to Stanford, and you're about to get your essays together, and you get kicked out the house in Brick City. Um, talk a little bit about this is a striking moment. I mean, that's a very particular story that, that details your relationship to family, particularly to your mother. Um, but one of the things I remember about you is how fiercely brave you were and how independent you were. And I just marvel, like, how is a 17-year-old thing walking around here um, with all of this, this capacity to just take ownership of oneself? So you get kicked out the house. You you have to go get the law, the, the popo, to get inside the house, not because you want to be in the house, but because you need your computer, because your damn college entrance exam essay is on it. <laughs> and then leave the house again. You apply and then leave. So talk about this moment, this, this sort of bridge between you um, having to rely on caretakers, your family, who you didn't always have the best relationship with at some points, um, and then you heading off to go to Stanford. Um, it was a, a moment of struggle. It was definitely a moment of growing pains, um, but also of like immense self-discovery. I had like come into consciousness as like a queer person, as a nerd, um, and had this sense, or like this blooming sense of how I wanted to exist in the world. Um, and sort of the knowing, not knowing the possibilities ahead of me, but knowing that um, the city that I was living in at the time and also the kinds of violences I was experiencing interpersonally with family or like navigating public space as a very visibly gender non-conforming person um, was just circumscribing my life or like the lack of economic opportunities in my hometown. And so I had this sense that like I needed to go elsewhere in order to uh, fully realize the person that I needed to become. And these sort of challenges of my own journey to self-discovery were also um, met with conflict because while I was carving out space for myself and trying to take up ownership, um, it also meant that I had to confront the um, the ideas or the images that other people had of me or wanted me to exist, and namely my family, um, which often led 
to strife and conflict. And so I remember that particular story um, that you just referenced um, was one in which, you know, me and my mother had gotten into an argument over something really mundane. Maybe it was about like me coming home late because I would like literally go to the library or like stay in school till like eight or nine o'clock because um, I had found a sense of, or I had found a community of other um, queer people in my high school and so we would just hang out together really late. Sometimes we would go to New York. Um, and I got home late one night and she was frustrated and she kicked me out of the house and like told me not to come home, um, which was one of a series of moments um, in which I was kicked out of my house. And it was never explicitly because of my queerness or my gender identity. It was mostly because as I was carving out this space for myself, um, I was becoming estranged or more distant from my, my mother and my biological family. Um, and I think that, you know, my mother did her best to raise two children in Newark on her own, um, but likely lacked the resources to fully um, care for and support me as like a trans kid. Um, and so I think that created just like a lot of strife, whether it meant like not necessarily always understanding me or the choices I made um, and trying to love me in spite of it, um, or um, feeling disconnected from my life as a parent. I think all of that sort of contributed to the, the strife that was between us. And so for me, I had this sense and like this sort of intuitive knowledge that I needed to just go away and that like I needed to get away from all of the things that was like at that time was like a source of trauma in my life but also that I felt was like circumscribing who I could become and so as a kid who had no money no resources no access to any kind of like wealth I knew that going to a college that um, would provide me like a full tuition, um, like a full need-based scholarship, was one of my only sort of options in order to continue this process of like self-discovery. So um, the next section of questions is called departures and returns, journeying and stagnancy. Departures and returns. So this notion of flight, this notion of travel, um, of movement, and also of being still, stagnant, buried, um, which is also present themes in your work. Um, talk about your journey. So you get to Stanford from Newark. I visited you in Stanford. <laughs> right. Oh, we have stories. <laughs> um, you leave one, one brick city to go to another one. Mm. That's sort of the architecture is, 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 is just as hard, but in a different type of way. Um, talk about Stanford's sort of molding of you for good and bad. Um, like most life experiences, um, undergrad and being a first generation black queer college student at Stanford was both liberating and um, challenging. I had so many resources for the first time to like different kinds of um, 
I just had access to knowledge that I didn't have access before that was um, so seminal to my own process of my own personal liberation. I was taking classes in black feminism, queer history, um, all kinds of art classes um, that ultimately like helped shape me into the artist I am. I had people who affirmed me as an artist um, and found a community, excuse me, of black, mostly black queer artists on campus, a very small community. And at the same time, um, navigating the hegemony of Stanford, which was existing predominantly amongst really wealthy white students um, whom, who had no access or understanding of the life worlds that I came from. Um, and so dealing with sort of the cultural shifts um, from the world that I was from and the one that I was moving into um, posed definitely a set of challenges um, in terms of like feeling or wondering whether or not I belonged in the space and um, dealing with those kinds of questions. But ultimately, um, I found and created an artistic community that I think that I like want to uplift and name because often we think of like universities like Stanford um, or like predominantly white institutions um, and like name sort of the hegemony of whiteness or wealth. Um, but at the same time, there are always folks there doing the work to make space um, for people like me, folks doing really brilliant black feminist queer work. And so I was able to access that community that was like actually life-saving. I mean, you had a chance to have your intellectual curiosity and your artistic one was shaped. You, you studied with Gloria Anzaldúa. I studied with Sheree Moraga. Sheree Moraga. Mm -hmm. John Morgan. John Morgan. Um, there's a bunch of people on campus then. Totally. Talk about that. Those were folks who, who really helped to um, definitely mold me as an artist and uh, a, a creative, a scholar. Um, I studied um, comparative studies and race and ethnicity. That was my undergraduate degree. Um, and it was a mix of black, queer, feminist thought. And so I was able to take classes around like um, the history of um, African-American women's lives. Um, for one, for example, in that class introduced me to different methodologies of archival research that um, has become a consistent part of my practice now and introduced me to like writers, authors, thinkers from Marlon Riggs to Essex Hemphill to Bell Hooks to sort of a range of folks um, who really shape my creative practice, but also like catalyze my own personal liberation. And it's also there where you, um, is that where you started performing with the Shade Chronicles? Were you at Stanford? It was, yeah. <laughs> Talk about, so do you all know Rashad Newsom, um, another artist, and I remember seeing you perform, I forget where we were at, but we were somewhere and you were performing with Shade Chronicles. So this is your entrance into performance art. Mm -hmm. Talk about that, sort of how that shaped your career path as well. Totally. So during my summer, during the summers between my 
between my sophomore, junior, and junior and senior years, I would do, I did internships um, in New York City. And one of those internships was in the studio of Rashad Newsom, who's like a contemporary artist who works across performance, collage, sculpture. And Rashad was like one of the first artists, like real artists, who was like, who had a, um, who had an art studio practice and was exhibiting in, you know, galleries across the U.S. Um, whose work I had saw at the Whitney Biennial. And so for me, as someone who like just started going to museums and galleries and like had a budding interest in contemporary art, um, I remember seeing his work at the Whitney in like 2014 or 13, maybe, um, and feeling for the first time that like. Uh, again, another moment of like reflection. They're like, oh, this is a possibility for me. Like, this is a reflection of both the world I'm inhabiting, but also the world that I want to forge for myself. And so, <coughs> excuse me, I did a, a, I interned in his studio um, in New York that summer. And then the following year, um, during my senior year, he was commissioned to do shade compositions at SF MoMA, and I was, uh, he invited me to perform in that, in that exhibition. So it was another moment of like finding, you know, artistic community in the Bay Area um, that will ultimately like help shape and inform my own solo practice. The personal is political is like a, a black feminist maxim that, um, that seems to make a lot of sense from, from your time at Stanford. This is at a point where your politics is shaping your personhood, your expression, um, but also in so many ways, like your personal expression, your personhood, your ways of being in the world is also shaping your politics and also your art practice and the way that you're moving in the world. Um, and I want you to talk about that a little bit because part of what I want to do and what I'm trying to do here is to understand a bit more, help us understand your artworks, that so much of these themes are these ideas, are these revelations, are these movements in your life, are non-movements, are actually reflected in this art practice that you have developed. Um, but talk about this moment where you finally have this moment of one of self-reckoning, um, I don't like to talk about moments in, in one's life of discovery as if they're fixed. That's, that's sort of like, as, um, uh, M. Jackie Alexander always says, you know, you all think y'all so radical, but you still talk about time as if it's linear. Um, I just thought that was funny, because I'm a nerd, but maybe, I don't know, maybe it's, but, like, you know, y'all think y'all so radical, you still believe in linear time. So I don't believe that there are these moments where you have this aha moment, this is who I am, this is what I'm supposed to be, that these moments are always with us, that these things are always happening. But something happens um, in your, your, your process of politicization at Stanford too, that like releases or at least gives you the courage to sort of leap into the person you are. Talk about that sort of experience. <clears throat> for me, my reckoning, or my, these things, as you said, were because time isn't linear but cyclical. Um, 
I was and always am like experiencing these moments of like self-discovery while also um, reckoning and sort of confronting the wreckage, you know, of my own sort of trauma because because the process of sort of self-becoming isn't always an easy one um, or one, yeah, that is without, um, without hardship. And so while it was like, you know, having these very like revelatory experiences, I was also like dealing um, with sort of challenges of, of, um, not feeling deeply connected with like the community at Stanford or feeling disconnected from like, from a sense of home, like home being like the East Coast, also home being like my family mm -hmm. um, and feeling sort of the weight of both, I guess I would say what the weight of what um, Fred Morton would say, would say is the problem of being a singular being that like this, um, that the rugged individualism that, you know, had got me to Stanford, that was, that had became um, sort of a survival mechanism um, was no longer serving me because it had be, sort of become a, a means of preventing me of like building community with other folks. And I had come into that sort of revelation when I was, into like my senior year um, at Stanford of like, how do I reckon with um, having assumed or adopted um, a sort of self-reliant way of being while also realizing that it's simply not sustainable. Um, that like I need people in order to, you know, survive and um, exist on this planet and sort of deal with the wreckage of um, capitalism. And so I ended up leaving school before graduating and moving back to the East Coast um, in search of community um, of other black, queer, trans, GNC folks doing work around racial justice, gender justice, economic justice. And so I ended up returning home um, in order to try and find those answers. You just made me think about um, when you returned home, we went to Chee Chee's. Do you remember Chee Chee's? <laughs> yes, we did. Yeah, anybody in here know Chee Chee's? Damn. This tells you how rapidly gentrified our city has become. Chee Chee's was a, a black, predominantly black gay bar on um, Christopher Street when Christopher Street was not yet dead. Um, and this was the place, so you all know Paris is burning, you know the pier. It was like a home to black, queer, trans life. And um, it's one of the places we used to sneak to. <laughs> and we had a moment there one time with a New York Times writer whose name we won't say. Because <laughs> this is being recorded. <laughs> I actually had a question down here. Do you remember Chi Chi's? Do you remember what happened? Oh, I do. <laughs> <laughs> it was quite unforgettable. But interesting enough though, like, that, that, that was a little less than a decade ago, and here we are in 2019 um, at what's the 50th anniversary of Stonewall. 
in a space that is so <clears throat> empty mm. of the radicalism um, that was present even then when we were when we were walking on those streets. Mm -hmm. I think it's important to name that, right? Because you're doing work in this particular moment in time. Um, but it, it's also making me think then about those people who sort of characterize or brought life, queer life, to culture. Um, so I'm going to name some names, and I want you to add to these names of people who have shaped you: Marlon Riggs, Audre Lorde, June Jordan, Sylvester. Marsha P. Johnson, Pepper LaBeja, you know, I know these are people who are in your orbit. Name some more. Essex Hemphill. Mm. <sighs> Hector Extravaganza. Jesse Harris. Sakia Gunn, a lot of names. Ashe, um, higher learnings are sometimes found in the low. It's hmm. another theme. Um, and I'm always thinking about how your work is also causing us to sort of critique high theory and its ability to always be imagined as something that is beyond low culture, or what we call low theory, or low culture. Um, you, I would, I would go on to say, because I know you, that so much you're learning, you, you're, you've always been real smart, right? Like you just, Kiana's always been super, super smart, like just beyond fucking, like I was like, how, how the hell you know this shit? Like why are you talking about like Derrida? Like you're 16. You know, um, so there's much to be said about like the type of learning that happens in places like Stanford and Columbia, but there is also something to be said about the type of learning that happens in Brick City, that happens in Bed-Stuy, that happens on the set, that happens wherever the people who are not considered theorists in the way that we come to understand it exist. Um, so I want you to talk a little bit about the learnings that happen outside of like Columbia, and Stanford, because you go on to get your MFA at Columbia. We praise that. Um, but you learned some shit on the streets, too, didn't you? And you learned some shit up in, um, you know, for, for good or bad, in the bars or the clubs or the piers or the places that we call secret. Um, doctor's offices, these are places where we are taught some shit, at too. Um, talk about that learning, that learning of what we call low theory and how that's also shaped your work, how it's inflected in your practice, um, how it's shaping you. It's funny that you bring up Chi-Chi's. Um, <laughs> um, that name is on the tip of my tongue. So right. <laughs> I mean, I love and will always love, you know, places like Chi-Chi's and Secrets and Esquilitas. Um, Do y'all know these places? Oh my God. These are all. We could hang with them. <laughs> these are all like legendary black, gay, queer clubs um, that have since been um, shut down because of various forms of um, gentrification in different parts of New York City that are 
um, particularly um, attacking social spaces for um, black and queer folks. Um, yeah, and those spaces were really important because they became um, sort of social spaces, one where like I could really unearth my own desire where like, whereas at a place like Stanford, um, there was no space for me to really access or unearth my own sort of desire as a black person who finds intimacy among other black people um, and where that just doesn't exist um, at places like Stanford, really in the Bay Area. And that's a different conversation. Um, and so, yeah, it was really, um, it was like at Chi-Chi's and these places where um, not only did I like get language, but like uh, had very embodied experiences through which, <laughs> through which I got to know myself more deeply and others. <laughs> this reminded me of a line from one of Marlon Riggs's <laughs> Um, but it was also literally in the streets in front of Shishi's where like I met some of like my best friends and sisters um, who truly helped uh, me find my sense of community. Um, and so it was like through, through nightlife, through going out and through going to the pier and through participating and like, um, public protests in New York City when I had left school where I had really found a sense of community mm -hmm. amongst other black trans and GNC folks. Yeah. And can you talk about the moments when um, you felt buried? Um, I love this sort of process in your work where you're asking of us to reflect on this. And, and there are so many ways in which, and you, even in your own life, there are these moments when you really were a seed um, breaking through like the rough terrain that is life, uh, but becoming nonetheless. These moments with um, you were unearthing. Look at this picture. <laughs> um, that is so like emblematic of of what I understand to be your journey. And talk about that. I mean, it's present in your work, but I'm talking about what it means to sort of like break through in a life. So they didn't see any of these questions that I have. They are like, probably like, where is all this coming from? <laughs> I'm not prepared. Um, so bear with us. No, I appreciate you. I want to revisit the metaphor that you just gave because it was really beautiful of unearthing. I never heard it formulated that way. Um, that of being a seed that's buried, that is in its process of blossoming and becoming. Um, I'd always thought of it as um, being obscured, mm. being buried, um, being hidden. Um, as a suffocating experience. And I'm thinking back to our earlier, the earlier point in our conversation 
um, about how moments of self-discovery happen simultaneously with moments of, um, for lack of a better word, self-tragedy. Um, and I'm thinking about, I guess I'm thinking about how unearthing became like a metaphor for me in my own life to give language to and to begin to articulate and express through performance, through a creative practice, um, to name those things that I felt were trying to bury and kill me, um, and to literally grab and take hold of those things and pull myself out of them. But I also love this metaphor of um, breaking through and growing in and despite of sort of the, the difficult and challenging you know, terrain that I existed in. Um, can you repeat that question for me one more time? No, you're doing good. Um, it's not really a question, it's a prompt. Mm -hmm. Um, and I, you're, you're already like responding to it. I guess another the question then is, what was healing for you? Or what did you find healing? Was it in the art practice? Was it in community? Was it in the activism? Um, what was sort of the water, the, the source material that was grounding you, that was allowing you to become? Um, because when I look at you sometimes, and I know, like, you know, you see people, there, there's, there's the people that we come to know, and we come to know their biography. We come to know their body of work. But what we don't ever really get to see, a lot of us, is the stuff that has to happen when the program is over, the stuff that is not on this page, for a person to get to be where they are. So because I know you, and I know that while it may look like you were a seed buried, that you were just grounding yourself and being rooted so that you can blossom. What was it, what, what talk about, um, and I, maybe it is the art practice, um, maybe it is finding voice or finding sort of insight and vision and revelation through the art practice. Maybe it's also the activism and the organizing, and maybe the activism and the organizing is the art practice, and none of those things can be pulled apart. But when I'm thinking about what it means to survive as a black trans, GNC, gender non-binary person in this moment in time, when literally, when I hear black trans women say to me shit like that, it literally, and they, you know, the act of revolution is actually to breathe every goddamn day. What were your means of survival? Your means of healing? What did you call upon? What spirit did you call upon? What were you doing so that you can be here today even when it may have been possible for you to feel like you should not have been. Y'all, I celebrate the fact that Kiana's here. Um, and that's really what I'm getting at. Thank you. I appreciate you. I think about uh, this quote from Bell Hooks, which I think she offered during a panel that y'all um, did a few years back at the new school. She said that a child who has been abused or experienced trauma 
can survive if they are witnessed. And for me, the art making was my form of witnessing. Yeah. It was the way that I could literally bear my burden down, um, excise and transform, transmit, make tangible um, all of the things that tried to bury and kill me and, and, and get them out of myself and make something of them and make sense of them mm. um, and do it before you know, a group of people who bore witness to my, to my testimony, to my experience. Um, and so the art making has always been in service of my own healing and my own well-being and livelihood. Mm. And it really became a way for me to, for me to, um, cultivate this sense of interiority that even when literally the brick city that I'm living in or the landscape that I'm inhabiting um, becomes inhospitable or hostile, you know, I had this really capacious and expansive space within, you know, that was a source of liberation and inspiration. And it was the art making that allowed me to feel expansive even when my life was stifling. You made me think about Lucille Clifton's um, poem, Come Celebrate With Me, mm -hmm. the last lines. Come celebrate with me that every day something, something has, has tried, tried to, to kill, kill me, me and has, has failed. failed. That's like scripture. If y'all, y'all, see, they was from the black church, they would've been like, <laughs> y'all would've felt that thing real deep. Y'all ain't giving no amens, ain't no ashes. They must've went to a Catholic church. They ain't from <laughs> Artworks, spirit, labor, blood, and dirt. Um, all of these things are sort of like at the heart of your work. Um, and in so much of your work, what you're doing is like interrogating, exploring an inner life, an interior world the stuff within, behind, and under the dirt. Um, this is in so many ways speaks to your art practice. So I wanna give you an opportunity to talk a bit about this art practice. And even maybe as some of the slides are turning, you can like comment on a bit on them and how these works are amplifying, animating, um, getting at so much of what you just talked about in terms of your own context, your journey, your politics, your activism. It's moving mad fast, but you know, just pick some. <laughs> totally. Um, so this piece right here, the, the brick piece, yeah. which is, it would make so much sense that like bricks would be a material that I'm attracted to, um, being from Brick City. Um, but it was, uh, for me it became a way to, it was, inspired by an impulse to return to a site, a place that was deemed um, disposable. So those bricks in particular were from a residential building not far from here on 132nd Street that was demolished by um, Columbia and its expansion into West Harlem. Um, and so I went to the site and recovered these bricks 
um, bricks that were not unlike the same bricks of my high school that had been demolished in order to build luxury condominiums, bricks not unlike the same bricks that my family made a life in, um, in what we called home. And so I was driven by this impulse to recover the residue um, from this site of, of loss um, and to sort of tend to, to these materials that that do hold value and meaning and that are evidence um, that embody perhaps the spirit of the lives of the people who once lived in that building, who called it home. And also these, these materials, you also like found materials like trash. Talk about your use of trash. Um, I started working with trash or literally putting myself in trash bags as a way to sort of process and confront sort of the politics of disposability around black, queer, GNC life. And it was particularly uh, this one performance, Trash and Treasure, was, a, was catalyzed by the murders of um, two black lesbians whose bodies had been disposed of in trash bags behind a dumpster. Um, and so in that particular performance, I emerge out of a trash bag um, and just speak to the lives and the magic um, and the necessity of the lives of um, black LGBT folks whose lives have been lost to acts of violence. And so I think that like <clears throat> the materials I'm attracted to, dirt, bricks, trash, are ways that I'm caring for my community or saying that the system of valuation that deems certain bodies and certain lives disposable um, are not ones that I participate in and that I'm in fact taking these materials that have been disposed of and discarded of and giving them new life. I would be remiss. I'm gonna, I have like one question after this one that I'm gonna ask, and that is like, I don't think we can have this conversation without one taking a moment to, to honor name, um, to call to account the memories of the black trans woman that have been killed over the last several weeks, um, to have this conversation about disposability, about the, the love, our lovelessness afforded to certain black people. Um, valuation and the ways we value are ignore, are deemed worthless. Um, some such that black trans women can die um, and there are no feet on the ground in mass marching. So I would be remiss to not like bring that up as we're having a discussion here with work that is critiquing, that is critiquing that lovelessness. Um, how might the role of the artist, and this is an easy, I think I'm answering the question, right, with the question, you know, but Mary Baraka, also from Brick City, 
says the role of the artist is to tell the truth and to not lie. Um, to reckon with beauty and also to reckon with its tra the life's tragedy. As an artist doing a particular type of work in this moment that is attempting to sort of ensure that the, the sum of these are not forgotten, how do you see the role of art um, and art making um, as a tool for freedom, as a tool for livability, as a tool for revolution, particularly for those who exist on the edges of the edges of the margins or who are seeds in that dirt, like black trans women and GNC folk. Firstly, I would respond by saying that, um, as I spoke to earlier, um, the art making is the source of my own livelihood and my own internal revolution, um, and perhaps is one of the reasons why, or one of the ways I have sort of the way, a way of being that I have found in order to be here and sort of exist um, despite the sort of structural violences that circumvent my own livelihood. I think that art can be at, at one, in, one, in one sense a way of witnessing um, and a way of memorializing um, as a means to resist the kinds of cultural amnesia and erasure that I think we even exist in in this moment of like the 50th World Pride um, in which sort of the narrative around pride is like really celebratory, but like literally not only is the, the planet dying, but like people are dying and experiencing like immense forms of tragedy like all around us at this very moment. And so I think that art has the capacity to shift those sort of overarching hegemonic narratives to like add complexity to them. Um, and I would like to believe that art has the capacity um, to, to catalyze community that like an artist's own sort of expression or articulation um, can transmit or be shared with other people in order to galvanize folks around an idea, a discourse, a way of being. And finally, what does freedom feel like, look like to you? That's a big one. You've been pulling out all the big questions tonight. <laughs> um, what does freedom feel like and look like in this moment? Um, in a material sense, freedom means being financially stable. Um, there are certain kinds of freedoms that come with, come with that, and so, uh, that's one aspect of freedom that I'm experiencing. Um, freedom also means that in terms of a creative practice that like 
For the most part, every day I wake up, I get to self-determine what my day looks like. Um, and that's a freedom that I did not know I could have, that like I could wake up and choose what I do with my hands, what I do with my feet, where my body moves, how it moves, um, that the choices, um, that like bodily autonomy and self-determination would be something that I could access as a person who mostly comes from families who've always had to engage in wage labor um, and spend most of our time um, commodifying our labor in order for in service of survival. And so freedom looks like being able to um, exist outside very momentarily and briefly. Um, those sort of systems that commodify black bodies. Um, freedom looks like me being able to rest in July. Um, <laughs> it's funny because when I was working on, um, I don't know if I, I didn't tell you this. No, I didn't tell you this. I was working on my second book proposal. Um, and in my description of one of the people who I talk about as inspiring me to think about revolution, internal revolution, I talked about you. And you are what freedom looks like to me. Um, so I, I just thank you for exhibiting that as a, as a, as a way of life. Um, as a politics, as a practice, um, in your artwork as well. You are what freedom looks like. Um, any questions for Keon? And I know this is not the Baptist church or the Pentecostal crowd. Y'all don't do a lot of talking and talking back in here. I, I didn't know they do it like this uptown. <laughs> um, but please, I invite you to talk. We can actually like make noise, breathe loudly if you need to. Um, and do please ask Kian questions. Um, I'm certain that they're open, yeah, to, to engaging. I can do like Vanna White. Here, you want to take this back? Yeah. Vanna Black, I'm sorry. Um, wow, so much. Um, well, first off, I'm going to lead with gratitude. Thank you um, for all that you have shared. Um, how did you arrive at using soil as a material? And maybe it's tied to the politics of disposability that you talked about earlier, uh, and you living that. Um, but I just think, I just wanna hear that moment where you maybe like had your hands in the soil and thought I could make something with this. 
Totally, thank you for that question. Um, for me, soil embodies both um, abjection of like both being like dirt and disposal and like embodying or evoking sort of a material that is that we want to dispose of, but in simultaneously is um, generative and life-giving. Um, and there are like a couple moments when I remember feeling both like touching soil um, and feeling either feeling both those things, feeling like a sense of shame that resonated with like an internalized shame that I felt as like a black queer person um, and also feeling like the possibilities of, of feeling that um, soil is life-giving and sort of embodies possibility for, for new life. Um, one of those experiences is going with my grandmother for the first time um, to her hometown in North Carolina. She was born in North Carolina in a rural, um, a small rural town that was previously a plantation where her family had worked the land under systems of sharecropping and then before that um, under the, the regime of slavery. And uh, as a teenager, she moved to the Bronx in Harlem and hadn't really visited much. And so we went for the first time when I was a child. And my grandmother's like Southern Baptist. As a kid, I didn't leave the house unless, you know, I was like put together the top button had to be buttoned. She was like licking her finger to like wipe dirt off my face. Um, we didn't leave the house unless we were like done. And I remember we went to her hometown for the first time. And when we arrived on the land where she grew up, where her father and her and her siblings would um, grow um, cantaloupe and different kinds of uh, crops. She literally pulled over in the car, took her shoes off, and we just walked on the land together barefoot. It was an experience that I never um, could have envisioned having with my grandmother. Um, and so that was like one moment when sort of the, when I realized that certain kind of relationship that black people have to the land that um, that is both um, that comes out of a very fraught and difficult and the history of black people being oppressed in the US but there's also this kind of transcendent experience that I've also had while literally being in in on soil um, and I think that my attraction or like I'm attracted to soilized materials is because it has the capacity to speak to those oppressive histories while also again um, being a material that embodies a certain kind of transcendence.
I think that microphone is not working. Hi, uh, thank you for sharing. As someone who's, I guess, experienced some of um, what we about in um, being displaced, I also went to high school in Newark. Um, so high school. Um, I went to this really um, small Catholic all-girls school, St. John's. Yeah, like not I a lot of people. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, and just, I guess, I wanted to um, better understand your ability. Um, candidly about your experiences with um, being displaced and um, your relationship with um, your family in a way that doesn't bring forth um, feelings of resentment and um, I guess anger, um, yeah. Um, thank you. And also shout out for Burke City being in the building. <laughs> um, My first initial thought is that time is truly healing. Um, and I think that like time and distance from an experience. Um, and then also along while having that time, um, accessing various kinds of wellness resources um, to sort of, to tend to those, the kinds of traumas that come from being displaced um, has also sort of helped like catalyze and support my own journey and healing. And part of that is like being in therapy. Part of that is being like practicing various kinds of holistic wellness practices um, like Reiki or um, um, practices that like really process kinds of traumas that live in the body. Um, part of that is being a performance artist and working through some of that trauma, um, through my performance practice. It's kind of a combination of all of those things. And it's probably also fair to say that emotions are never so flat as not to be, a, not to be complex. You can, you can be talking about something <laughs> and still be angry about things and still hold anger next to compassion um, yeah. Totally. Yeah. That all of those things can exist simultaneously. I call it like a practice of costly grace <laughs> as opposed to cheap grace. Like if you want to know what cheap grace is, think about America's expectation of black people to embrace its idealism when it doesn't practice the thing that it says, you know, a cheap grace is like a white racist walks into a black church, shoots nine parishioners dead, and everybody says, just pray about it and get over it. Costly grace is grace that is an extension of what one might call like atonement, but atonement can only come when the person who is violating you understands that they are violating you. Um, so it's possible that we can um, extend costly grace to people who have harmed. Um, particularly when those folk are, are, are ready to sort of restore relationship and, and, and to sort of stop the violence. I think that's super important. And it's something that um, I think is a liberatory practice that I also see, not only you, you know, you sort of model in your work, 
your artwork, but you've modeled that as a politic, as a way of life, because damn it, there's so many people we wouldn't be friends with if we didn't have costly grace. Okay. Um, that's a great question. That's a great question. Any others? Hello. <laughs> Thank you for that. Um, gratitude again. I would also like to express, because it does take a lot uh, to produce what is kind of based on something you said that I thought was so impactful when you said that you were driven by the impulse to recover the residue. Still, like, goosebumps, right? So, um, and just the other day, thinking about when they see us, and I'm kind of relating this to the muzzle that you remade and refashioned, um, and if you, I want you to speak to that, but I guess the prompt in, in it would be looking at TV last week um, when the reporter asked our president, Forty for the president, about the exonerated five. And the response to the question was, they pled their guilt, and then he walked away. <laughs> so even as black people, when you can be exonerated, have the New York Police Department apologize, not have any DNA match any of those people, and so have the commander in chief of these United States still not witness these black men after all of these years, today, 2019. So um, what was it like for you, I guess, putting that on your face and having to do that? And how like, was it hard to go back and embody that space of a slave with the muzzle on? Well, part of the premise of the performance was putting the muzzle on, knowing that I could take it off. <laughs> Excuse me. Um, and part of the premise was also unearthing or really just to memorialize an experience, um, to memorialize a way of or form of transgression um, that enslaved black folks would practice in order to transgress the conditions and the systems under which they existed. And so one of the reasons why um, these muzzles and punishment masks were forced onto enslaved black folks was as um, punishment for eating dirt. And eating dirt was a practice that folks in the American South and the Caribbean practiced um, perhaps for indigenous reasons, but also very specifically under the regime of slavery um, as a way to withhold their labor because they would be considered sick or ill um, from eating the dirt and therefore would be, um, would be um, mandated to rest and then wear these punishment masks in order to prevent them from eating the soil. And so for me, 
and sort of evoking and unearthing that history. Um, wearing the mask was both a way to, which I think you already said, like a way to perhaps embody that experience, um, but also always knowing that like I can take the mask off and thinking about um, the mask becoming allegory for other forms of structural violence that might function as masks in my own life. Did that answer your question? Cool. Any other questions? Anything you want to say? Um, Anything you want to ask? Not me, but... <laughs> I think I just... I have, I'm just want to extend my gratitude to Devin and to all the folks who made this moment a possibility to you. Um, I am just grateful for all of you being here um, to bear witness to a part of my own journey um, and to have had the opportunity to like reflect on the life that I've lived. So thank you. Thank you. Can we give Kian a round of applause? And thank you to those who have called us to be here, who I'm turning the mic over to. Here, use this one. The more reliable one, I guess. Thank you so much, everyone, for coming. Um, are you going to stick around for a couple minutes if people have questions they want to ask you off the mic? Okay, yes, so Kian will stick around for a couple minutes. If you have any questions that you're a little afraid to ask in that very public way. Um, so thankful for everyone joining us. Um, our next program is a Storytelling Saturdays program with Gloria Eden of Well-Read Black Girl. And that'll happen July 20th, uh, two to four o'clock p.m. at our project space located, yes, right next door at 429 West 127th Street. We'd love to see you there. Thank you.